Welcome to the Teen Financial Freedom Podcast. Teen Financial Freedom is a personal finance blog run by teens who are on a mission to equip their peers with the knowledge, resources, and understanding they need to become financially free for the rest of their lives. Welcome back, everyone, to the Teen Financial Freedom Podcast. It's me, Chase, today hosting the show. I know sometimes we have a couple other people who come on here and host, but for today and for probably moving forward with a couple of changes that have been happening at TFF, I will be hosting the podcast a whole lot more. So I'm really excited today because we have Dr. Oh gosh, I should have asked her to pronounce your name before I started this intro. Dr. Shirag Shemison. Is that is that right? No, but it's okay. It's uh, <laughs> Shemasian. Yeah, no worries. It's Shirag Shemasian, you said. That's right. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Cool. So obviously, Mess up the name. That's okay. I do that a lot. I'm super excited to have him on the show today because we don't get doctors on here a lot. And I always find that talking with people like you, Mr. Shirag, is like specifically doctors specifically, is always really interesting because you guys have this level of insight into human psychology and um, just the actual, what actually happens inside of our bodies, you have a much higher level of insight than most guests would traditionally have on the show. So I'm very excited to have you on and talk about everything. Because guys, one of uh, Shirag's biggest things is college admissions. He is wildly successful with getting people into college. He has a 90% success rate getting people into med school, Ivy League schools. He is highly successful. For, so for our high school students here who are trying to get in, he, this is going to be an interesting interview for you guys. And then I can't wait to talk uh, psychology and everything else with you today, Mr. Mr. Dr. Shimasium. So awesome. how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Chase. How are you? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Uh, like I said before the show, smash my finger a little bit. But, you know, other than that, we, we roll and we're doing good. Good. One day at a time. One day at a time. Exactly. Especially coming up on Christmas here. Holy moly, things get things get crazy. Yeah, I know. It's uh it's kind of wild. Uh, you know, I was at the mall yesterday. My my family members were asking about what I'd want for Christmas. I'm like, sorry, I, I haven't thought about this very much. So I did that. I was like, wow, uh, there are a lot of people here. And it was an uncharacteristically rainy day in San Diego, which added to the to the interestingness. But but yeah, I'm just excited to hang out with the family and I guess eat a lot and we'll oh, see yeah. what happens from there. Yeah. No, I hey, it's it's it. Christmas is the best time of year to simultaneously chill, but also have a lot happen to you. There you go. I, I love it. I love it. So I kind of wanted to start today's talk, our interview, whatever, by discussing your childhood, because I think that's one of the biggest things. We have a lot of young listeners on this podcast is mm-hmm. talking about your childhood and what led you to the point that you're at today. So what were you like when you were in high school? Were you a high achieving student? Were you an average student? And how did you go from there to being accepted into med school? Yeah. So um, quick point of clarification. I, I didn't go to medical school. I, you know, I have my PhD in clinical psychology and, mm-hmm. and we'll get to all that in a moment because I do help a lot of people get into medical school. And I was pre-med uh, for, for pretty much my entire life up until uh, graduation. So yeah. I'll get into that in a moment, but of course. so we're talking, uh, you know, from high school. So what was I like in high school? Was I a good student? Not a good student. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in high school, I, you know, I was a very good student. So I yeah. got, you know, all A's did well on AP exams, all this good stuff, but I didn't like school. Uh, you know, I, I grew mm-hmm. up with, you know, 
just not liking to read. I'd rather, I'd much rather play video games and basketball, two things I still enjoy, but given my work and family responsibilities, I have a, a wife and a three-year-old son. I don't get to the, to the video games or basketball playing <laughs> as much as I'd like to, but uh, still things I, I enjoy, but yeah, my interests were, were much more in, you know, recreational stuff, but I always did well in school. You know, I, mm-hmm. I knew what the teachers wanted us to know. I, you know, I, I guess had the level of intelligence and, you know, just enough work ethic to, to make it happen. The, the big thing for me was, you know, I always want to go to a great school for college because, you know, I have mm-hmm. immigrant parents and they were always like, you know, go to school, get a good job with benefits and, you know, they, and with their accent and, and, I went to an all Armenian school. So it was very tricky because, uh, you know, when I got to the point of college applications, they actually didn't know what to do. So I said, right. all right, mom, dad, you've been pushing for college this whole time. And you want us to go to, you know, X, Y, and Z type of school, you know, my mm-hmm. brother and I, and all right, now it's time we're here. How do we make it happen? They're like, Oh, we don't know. We didn't go to school here. And my counselor at school was also an immigrant to the States. Right. And so I had to figure it out all on my own. And I had no idea. So back in the day, there was no, you know, major site or blog with all these resources. You had to go to like the local Barnes and Noble or a bookstore and Mm -hmm. pick up these college guides and read about schools and what it takes to write a great college essay and all these different things that just didn't exist back then. Right. And so I was self-taught and I was able to get into a great school. I went to, you know, Cornell for undergrad. And in my high school's entire history, I think I'm still the only person to go to an Ivy League school. So it's not, I didn't go to the type of school that churns out a bunch of Ivy Leaguers or people go to Stanford or, you know, all these kinds of places. It was very different experience. But what ended up happening, Chase, is a lot of people would see, oh, you know, you went to such and such school, got these scholarships, et cetera. How did you do it? And I would help others. And then they would achieve these things. And on and on it went until it sort of grew via word of mouth. And over time, I started writing about these topics more. So a lot of students who are listening, you know, you might have searched for a college admissions topic, perhaps our name came up, and perhaps you read some of the resources and, and, and it just kind of proliferated from there. So it started out as a really I don't want to say selfish, but it was, you know, self-driven in that I want to go to this great school. So I had to learn about it and it was organic in that way and out of necessity. And over time it grew and and now I've supported quite a bit of students with top colleges over the years. That's, I mean, Hey, that's a heck of a story right there. I love that your guidance counselor didn't even know how to, how to apply to college. Like I feel like that's a pretty big requirement for the job, but that's kind of, it's pretty hilarious to me. Yeah, it was very limited, right? So at our at my school, I went to an all Armenian high school and people mm-hmm. wanted to stay in Los Angeles where I grew up. And so the big thing was, you know, apply to UCLA and USC and a couple of the Cal State schools. Mm-hmm. And and for those, you know, it was fine. You know, they knew the application systems, this is what you put in, you send your transcripts and that's it. But if you wanted something different, mm-hmm. sorry. You know, you, you were kind of on your own. And, right. you know, I think that other students have this experience too, unfortunately, where a lot of guidance counselors or the people they see in their community go to schools only in their area. And there's nothing wrong with that unless you want something different. And then it becomes a big issue. And so a big part of our role is helping students, you know, understand uh, how to get into places that they might not necessarily have the model for. Right. I mean, I completely get what you're saying there, because I know that if I were to go to my personal guidance counselor, be like, hey, you got a step by step role guide for me to get into Harvard. She probably she probably wouldn't have much to offer. She'd probably be uh, good grades, you, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. because 
I think unless, like you said, you go to a school that turns out Ivy League applicants, there's not going to be a huge, a uh, huge range of experience there. Cause like you said, you're probably the only student in your school's history to go to an Ivy league. Mm-hmm. And I think there are maybe 10 kids that we know of from my school from like the past 10 years who have gone off to I- Ivy league. So yeah, there's not a huge range of experience there. So you applied to an Ivy league. You got, you got accepted, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I did my undergrad at Cornell. That, Hey, that's awesome. So you got accepted to Cornell and then you were, you said you were in pre-med, right? Were you a pre-medical mm-hmm. student at Cornell? Yep. Did you, when you started at Cornell, did you have the intention of becoming an actual, like a practicing doctor that would work at a hospital or were you intending to be in some other profession? No, since I was a little kid. Uh, well, at first I wanted to be in the MBA and then I realized mm-hmm. that's not happening. So around uh, age eight, nine, I was like, all right, I should take school a little bit more seriously. Right. And, you know, went down a path of, you know, studying hard and wanting to become a doctor. My older brother also always wanted to be a physician and he he is, he's an emergency medicine physician uh, in pediatrics. So he Mm -hmm. helps kids who are going through some acute stuff. And I just, you know, sort of started going down that route. And in college, you know, I had done very well. So I finished Cornell with a three, nine GPA. I was ready to apply to medical school. Thank you. And uh, and everything was set. And and then I took a detour uh, and then I never looked back. And so I grew up with Tourette's syndrome. So it was always an interest of mine to learn more about the brain, uh, to learn more about why we behave the way that we do, why we think mm-hmm. the way we do, the way we act, the way we do. And in college, I was doing a lot of research on mental health. I was doing a lot of service work in mental health. A lot of my clinical work was in that space. And you know, this personal and professional interest sort of took me to psychology instead of into medicine, uh, because, you know, I found that, well, I I really enjoy this stuff. I want to go directly in it rather than studying all the other parts of the body. I wasn't that interested in like learning about the heart or bones anymore and things like that. And so I want to really go into, you know, clinical psychology and neuroscience and things like this, which is why I made the shift. But along the way, I had been helping people get into medical school and certainly beyond. And then, you know, years later and residency and all this kind of stuff. And so my expertise in, in med school admissions just grew and grew and grew. Right. And it's really interesting because, you know, sometimes people ask me, oh, do you like use your psychology background at all these days? And, and I say, I probably use it more than ever, uh, only because there's so much strategy that involves psychology with this process. You know, the way you position yourself on an application, the way you think about what an admissions committee member might want to see and playing to that and how to make your story more compelling. And then the anxiety that students go through, right? There's just a a tremendous uneasiness, um, you know, as a current college applicant, I'm sure you're experiencing this too, Chase, where it's crazy. Every day you're like, when am I going to hear the news? What is it going to be? What's my plan B? I've never thought about a plan B because I always had my eyes on this one school, you know, all this kind of stuff. You're wearing a Michigan shirt, right? Like, so all these things are highly emotional, these processes. And so helping our students navigating, not only the, the actual strategy of it all, but also the emotions surrounding it is just critical. So um, it's, it's just a treat. And I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility for it. Of course. So can you explain to our audience exactly what Tourette's syndrome is, because I don't know that everyone has heard of it. I know I have, because my cousin suffers from it. I don't know if suffers is the right word, but sure. my cousin has Tourette's. So if you could explain to our audience exactly what that is, that would probably help provide a bit of context here. Sure, sure. So it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. Uh, what that means is it affects the brain and it's developmental, right? It starts uh, at a younger age and carries mm-hmm. 
on throughout development. And it changes for different people. And I'll get into that in a moment. But it's characterized by the presence of motor and vocal tics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a tick, so a tick is just any, you know, like semi-voluntary stereotyped repetitive behavior. What that means is you do it over and over again in similar ways, even though it can change. You can have a mm-hmm. tick in your shoulder, like I just did, or you can, you know, do something with your wrist or make a face or something like that. That would be yeah. a motor tick. They can be more complex. They could, you know, they could be like a chest hit and your arm out. So it can be a string of movements, um, on the vocal side, you know, um, common ones might be a characteristic way of humming or, you know, scratching your throat. So for example, you know, might be a tick that someone might have, uh, they might make a sound like, ha. Ah, you know, they might make a sound like that. And then in super rare cases, uh, you might have something, uh, where you, where you involuntarily use curse words or something like that. That's super uncommon. Most people think that when someone has Tourette's, they curse uncontrollably. I've seen that stereotyped a lot. Yep. That have that comes up all the time, and uh, but it's super rare. I don't have an exact percentage, but it's not common. And I've and I've gotten so many of it. You know, I'll go to the supermarket cashier and maybe have a tick, and the person will say, "Are you okay?" And I'll say, "Oh yeah, you know, I just have Tourette's syndrome." They'll say, "Whoa, don't curse at me!" And I'm like, "That's a really weird thing to say in response." But it, <laughs> but it's a stereotype that a lot of people have uh, about yeah. folks with Tourette's syndrome, and I never had that tick, so but I know some people who do. And so because of this, obviously you went and became, you went into psychology. Did, were you ever a practicing psychologist or did you move primarily into uh, college admissions, et cetera, like this? Cause I'd love to know what your life looks like now, how your time is divided, where you yep. where where the majority of your work goes. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. So again, going back to like the Genesis story, you know, this was something that I did as a, almost just as a labor of love, you know, was helping people for, for no pay or anything like that for a long, long time. And, and I was, even when I started, you know, my organization, it was really on the side for, for some time, you know, before I decided, before I went full-time into it. And now I do this work Mm full-time, but, you know, after grad school, even, yes, I would see patients uh, in private practice. I would assist with developing psychological tests. Uh, That's my expertise within psychology. So a lot of math and statistics. And it's really when, you know, I started seeing just how much value uh, was being given to these students and our students were super successful. And I was just finding, you know, even more excitement in my work in admissions uh, than I was in my work in psychology, you know, specifically uh, that I, that I made it a full-time thing. And this is what I, what I really enjoy again, super big sense of responsibility. And every single year when our students, you know, get in and they're celebrating and all that kind of stuff, I just share so much joy with them. Of course. So before we dive into talking about the college admissions process, and I mentioned this before we started, but I'd love, we have a lot of young teen entrepreneurs, people who listen to this podcast, who are interested in starting a business already run a business, mm-hmm. have a side hustle. And a question that we've gotten before is why should someone attend college? Because we see somewhat frequently and more because the media likes to pick them up, but we see stories of uh, young kids who make a lot of money, who don't go to college, who start businesses and they're very successful. So I know that there's a lot of people who have dreams of doing something just like that. So I'd love to hear your opinion on the, whether or not people should go to college. Okay. So I don't have a, 
a yes or a no, you know, blanket answer for everybody. The hard thing um, is there is no blanket answer. And I think that's what pe- a lot of right. people miss. It depends yep. on each person. I think in most cases, I think people should elect to go to college. Uh, and I'll explain why. And I'll also explain when I think it might be okay to not. So we all hear stories of so-and-so who didn't go to college and started this business and is doing great. Or we hear about Mark Zuckerberg and how he started at Harvard and dropped Mm -hmm. out or Bill Gates and all this kind of stuff. These are the exceptions. They're not the rules. Most people who are successful entrepreneurs, high income earners, all this kind of stuff are actually college graduates. So the reason why, so the reason why the media talks about certain situations and plays up and they're newsworthy is because they're rare. Right. You don't see a you don't see a story in the news of, you know, Chase drove down to the local Chick-fil-A, got a chicken sandwich and returned home. That's a pretty normal thing. So we don't yeah. hear we don't read about it in the New York Times. Right. Or in Fortune. We hear about things that are outliers. And so it's not the case. So even if there are, you know, a good number of folks who are younger and are entrepreneurs, they are still a tiny, tiny percentage of young people who A, are entrepreneurs and B, are successful entrepreneurs, because we still know that most businesses fail within the first year, certainly within the first five years, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like one of these things like, ooh, that person's an entrepreneur, sounds good, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and, you know, become a gazillionaire overnight. It just doesn't work that way. Right. And and so let's call that out first things first. Now, if you want to go to into a specific profession, like, you know, you want to be a plumber. Do you need a college education? No, you don't. Now, will the education, you know, assist you with the business aspects of it? Sure. Can you work it? Can you learn it through trial and error? Sure. So I don't think that there's one path, you know, for every single person on this earth. But it's also, I think, wrong to think that the only purpose of going to college is the likelihood that you will make X amount of dollars. Okay. Because there's also the connection, like the social aspect of it, studying things you never thought you'd be, you you would have never studied otherwise, uh, different experiences, you know, and most people at, I don't know that I know at age 17, 18, they think they know what they want to do. They go to college, change majors. They thought they were going to do a certain job. They do something different and so on. So it is an interesting exploratory phase where in high school, you don't really have that. It's kind of like you take these courses. These are the things you do and that's it. You don't get that freedom, that academic freedom that you have in college. So that's one thing. But then even on the purely financial side, Chase, on average, if we're looking at data, right? And anyone who's an entrepreneur or a budding entrepreneur, they should be interested in data and trends. We see time and time again, every single year, on average, the higher up you go in education, the the higher the income gets. Mm -hmm. So people with bachelor's degrees on average earn higher incomes over the course of their lifetimes than someone without a bachelor's degree. People with master's degrees out earn over the course of their careers, people with a bachelor's degree and no graduate degree, right? Mm -hmm. So a bachelor's, but no graduate degree the master's degree earners or more. Same thing is true of people with doctorate degrees. They tend to out-earn people with just the master's or just the bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. So if people are thinking about like, well, you know, I know so-and-so who made X amount of money and all this kind of stuff, that's fine. But the trend is clear. The higher you go in your education, the more money you will earn over the course of your career on average. Right. So a big counterpoint that a lot of people bring up is that 
college is getting more and more expensive, right? It can go anywhere from I, you know, you can be anywhere from ten thousand dollars a year to, in extreme cases, sixty and seventy thousand dollars a year. Sure. Um, and so I know that a lot of listeners here on the podcast and people in general have begun to question whether or not they should be getting their bachelor's degrees and over going to a trade school or something else because sure. you hear all the time stories of people who go get a bachelor's degree and they graduate with a degree that might not be useful for them or they can't find a job post-graduation and they are $150,000 in debt at the beginning of their career and aren't quite sure where to go with that. And obviously that's not the best, that is not exactly where you want to be when you're leaving college at 22, 23. So to someone who raises that question, the idea that like, what if I go in and I don't end up getting a job post-college? What would you recommend someone with that fear does? What would you, or to someone who is in that situation, what would you recommend they do? It's interesting you're bringing this up because we're living in a very different climate professionally than when I graduated from college. So I graduated college around the financial crisis and the housing crisis of you know 2008. You know, most of the listeners, if they're younger, they're not really going to remember this very well. Right. Maybe they read about it. You know, we're talking 13 years ago. So if you're 17, you were three. Exactly. Which uh, might feel like, well, that's crazy. You know, that's a long, long time ago, but but it was, it was wild. So when I was graduating college, actually, there were tons of people who came out unemployed and Mm -hmm. yes, the cost and cost of college was high. It's not quite as high, but also the employment situation is way, way better today than it was back then. In fact, we're, we're in the middle of the quote unquote, great resignation. People are leaving jobs. Companies are scrambling to hire people and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And so right now, you know, of course, uh, you, we're in a, I would argue in some ways we're in a job surplus, right? right? Whereas jobs were scarce when I graduated. Now, the question is, you have to be, you have to have some clarity about why you're going to college and also what type of college and your family's financial situation. So right. there are some people I know, we all know very, you know, all of us know at least one quite wealthy person or some yes. well-to-do person. And for them, even 50K a year, doesn't matter. They pay it out of pocket. They save uh-huh. for their kids. They invested, whatever. Now, let's say that's not you. And by the way, that wasn't me. So when I went to Cornell, I took care of it all myself. So they were very generous in terms of grant funding. I got scholarships. I covered it in full. My parents didn't have to pay for me. Right. Now, but that's not everyone. But get very clear uh, about what you're studying, about the skills you're developing, uh, and also the types of schools you get into. So if you know that you're going to be, for instance, um, an English teacher in, in, at the elementary school level. And you know that in your community that earns around 45, 50,000 or something like that. And you're going to go to a school that, you know, charges you $60,000 a year. Unless there's some program where you can join and get a loan, you know, repayment program from the government or a local community agency and something like that after you graduate, it might not be the most sound financial decision. Right. to do that. Now, if you're going to be a physician and you're going to have to take out some loans in undergrad, but going to that great school is going to put you in a better spot for medical school where most people actually don't get in when they apply, mm-hmm. that might be worth it. And you're going to earn a higher income later on and be able to pay off those loans, even though it's still difficult and med school still have loans, there is at least a way out versus if you're making the 45, 50K salary in your job, getting out from under $200,000 debt, especially if you want to also buy a house and have kids and all this kind of stuff, it's much more difficult. So right. your priorities have to come into question and you have to think about, hey, based on where I want to go, 
is is this school and this amount of money the right idea right mm-hmm. and so you have to think ahead but the the dangerous thing in our country chase is and i'll explain what i mean because what i'm about to say might you know might startle people is we have become so obsessed in our country about you know everyone go to school everyone get a higher education all this kind of stuff that it's sort of a, an automatic thought that oh i'm going to go to college and i'm going to like go to the best possible school and all this kind of stuff so people no, don't really stop to question most of the time whether the college education and the price tag is worth it the same way right. people don't really question in our country whether buying a house is a good idea right it might be a good idea if you live in a you know in a very affordable part of the country but if you live in like San Diego where I live and you know you can't really find a, a house in a desirable neighborhood under you know three quarters of a million eight hundred thousand dollars well mm-hmm. maybe renting is better but we have all these preconceptions of like well you're throwing money away on rent and all this kind of right. stuff same thing with school it's never a bad idea to go to you know the best possible school you can get into well we actually have to question that because it's not right. always the case yeah okay you said a lot of stuff in there that I really love with the idea I, I love that you say that you really have to analyze your financial situation. Like it's coming back to what we said earlier. There's no one solution for every person yep. here. Um, Cause like you said, there are some people who their families can just pay for their college tuition out of pocket. And like, yep. not, not here to shame those people. Like good for you. It's you, wonderful. You, yeah. Run I wish it. we were all in that position. I think yes. it's a wonderful blessing. Yep. No, a hundred percent. But when you don't have that opportunity afforded to you, you need to be more analytical in the way that you approach college. Yep. Because I think something that people make a lot of mistakes on is there's the idea of you should always chase your passions and always, always, always go for your passion. And that isn't always going to work out for you. Unfortunately, unfortunately, like we can't all chase our passions. You know, like if I wanted to save monkeys for my passion, I could but it's not going to be nearly as feasible. You know, like if I go to Africa and save monkeys and make eight grand a year, it's going to be a lot less feasible financially than, you know, getting a degree in business and going to join a company. Now, obviously there's an argument on both sides of that, but you do have to be very analytical when you're going into these things. Cause it's, it's a big decision for a young person. You know what I mean? Like I think a lot of people, a lot of young kids, my age, when we go to college, it's like, Oh, tuition's 40 grand a year. And that kind of goes over our heads. You know what I mean? Like for someone my age, 40 grand is for most people is a number that's kind of inconceivable. You know what I mean? Like we, yep. we've never seen that much money. So a lot of people miss that idea that like, wow, that's, that's a lot, you know, it's, it's yep. not a small number. Um, so I do love your basically saying, be analytical and be smart about where you choose to go to school and the degree that you choose to pursue. So when people are in high school and they're looking for a, high, a college to go to, or at least trying to set up their, their college application resume, whatever, what do you suggest people do? And also, how do you think people should go about finding things that they're interested in while they're in high school? Because I know you said it can be difficult while you're in high school to figure out your passions. Um, and the, but I'd love to see, know if you have any suggestions for how people could do that in sure. addition to setting up their college resume. Sure. And the passion, passion is one of the more dangerous words, I think, for high schoolers and certainly their parents. There's this idea in, you know, that's sort of rampant in our country these days of like, find your passion. And once you discover your passion, you should do X, Y, and Z. Right. And, 
and until then, I don't know, wait around for your passion. I don't know what the plan is. Um, so I, yeah. I, I think it's kind of silly when we talk about passion because it's not just going to hit you. You're not, you know, you're not like uh, Isaac Newton when the apple fell on his head or whatever that story is. And he's like, oh my gosh, there's gravity. It just hit me like that. That's not how passion right. develops. Okay. You, passion is pursue something you're kind of curious about and go into it, nerd out about it, get deeper into it. And then the passion will come. Right. So I don't think people should wait around for their passion. I think they should do things that they're curious about and interested in. And the passion develops. I've become more passionate about admissions, the better I've gotten at it mm-hmm. and the more I do it. Right. And I'm sure that's the same with you and this podcast. It was probably, you oh, know, yeah. at the first episode, you weren't as good. You know, you were working on some kinks and I'm sure I, you had some editing yeah, nightmares and we don't recording even talk nightmare. About we, don't, we don't talk about those things, right? <laughs> um, but but the passion came when you got good at it. You became a better interviewer. You, you got more curious and all these kinds of things. So what I would tell the high schoolers is don't put so much pressure on yourself to to know from day one what you're going to do for the rest of your life, for the rest of high school, and don't wait until it hits you for you to actually get off your butt and do something, right? I think that's really important because otherwise you're just going to, you know, twiddle your thumbs. It's not going to hit you. You're sort of going to be blowing in the winds. And so if there's something you're interested in, so let's take, for example, I don't know, Maybe you like, like a lot of people think, well, I think I might like X. Okay. Did you try it? No. Why not? I don't know. I, well, I'm not sure. Who cares? Try it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, is the sky right. going to fall? Like what, what's the worst that's going to happen that if you try it, if you don't like it, that's fine. You don't have to do it. But also every field in our world is its own rabbit hole. Right. Right. So if you get into, let's say, like, I like fashion. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. Fashion. There's the actual clothing. So there's the art and design of it, but there's also manufacturing, there's marketing, there's sales, uh, there are, you know, there's trend setting and influence. I mean, there's so many aspects of fashion. And so someone could like fashion, but fashion marketing, which is different than fashion designing, right? Mm -hmm. I would be interested in marketing fashion. I would not be interested in designing fashion, right? And so people, I think, they consider how a field is almost one note. It's like, oh, there's only fashion designing. No, there's so much around it. So you might get into a space that interests you and you realize, yes, I like it. Well, what about it do you like? Well, I like this. So then follow that thread. Essentially, as you go deeper anywhere, you're going to get to various forks in the road and you're going to say, oh, like I can go in this direction or this direction and just follow you know, follow your interest as it goes on. And eventually your passion in your specific area will develop mm-hmm. and you'll, you'll essentially get deeper over time. I mean, yeah, I, I, there's no better way to describe it. Cause you, you mentioned while we were going through this, that my passion for this podcast has developed over time. And I'd say that you're hundred percent right. Cause this started, my initial idea was, I heard this other guy who did an interview of like a millionaire or whatever. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. I want to talk to a millionaire. And like that, that was where it started. That's where we started. Sure. I, thought, I thought it'd be cool to talk to rich and smart people. And so from there, I started to develop this and I contacted like the one guy I knew who was kind of rich and pretty smart. Um, and we just, we've ran from there. And across the last nine months, I've interviewed tons and tons of people. And it's been a really, really magical experience. And sure. the crazy thing is it's only been nine months. Um, 
I think there's this, there's this quote I heard is that people overestimate what they can do in a month or in a week and underestimate what they can do in a couple of years. Um, because people are for the most part, really bad at planning long-term. I know, especially, especially people who are my age, um, younger kids, because there's a lot that changes in a very quick and short period of time for me. Like if I tried to make a five-year plan when I was 12, <laughs> it would, like that, that five-year plan would not have held up. So can you speak a little bit to why people have such a hard time finding their passions and why they're so resistant to trying new things? Because I know, I know uh, me personally, even I having done all of this and resistant to trying new things that I'm not necessarily haven't done before. I'd love to, to hear you speak a little bit on that topic from a psychological standpoint, why a lot of the times people are afraid of trying things out, even though they know that it's the best thing that they should do. Sure. I think there are a few reasons, right? Number one is conditioning. Mm-hmm. What we've heard and read in magazines, on the news, in the media, our parents, mm-hmm. uh, all of those are, you know, huge influences. Other thing, the other reason I think is we like to do what we're good at. We don't like to do what we're not good at, even if it interests us. And we don't like failing. Right. You know, we, we'd rather, all of us like to do things where we're more likely to be successful, that we're good at, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if some, we're not great at something, we don't try because failure doesn't feel good. It just feels like there's more inertia. There's more right. friction. And But the conditioning thing, I think, is very important to talk about because we're all given messages ever since we were little kids of what you should do, right? Right. You know, oh, if I talk about this all the time, you know, my parents are immigrants. And when I talk about how my parents, you know, gave us the menu, I call it, you know, doctor, dentist, engineer, lawyer, those are your options. And, <laughs> but and no one questions it. You know, when you're a six-year-old, you know, Armenian well, yeah. kid in Los Angeles, you're not like, but I've considered fashion. You know, no one does it. Yeah. No, it's just like my parents told me this, I did it. So that also conditions stuff. So if I get to, you know, if I get to high school, I'm like, I'm actually really interested in photography. Mm, that wasn't on the menu. You know, you kind of don't consider it. So it feels right. uncomfortable to, you know, to zig when everyone else is zagging or whatever that saying is. And, and then we hear about it now. So I have more students than ever who come to me and they say, I'm interested in robotics and computer science and all this kind of stuff. Is it the, I mean, I know those areas have proliferated, but is that really everyone's interest or is that just like, that's how you make it? That's where the jobs are. You know, we hear about Amazon, Google, and Facebook, and, you know, you come out of college making hundred thousand dollars and benefits and all this kind of stuff. Right. But people don't stop and question why they like something. They just kind of go. And then, you know, they're 25, 30 years old looking back and say, what the heck am I doing here? Like, am I actually enjoying this? My priorities are shifting and, and what have you. So conditioning and what we think we should do, those are such powerful things. Right. And we consider them to be just, oh, like fact, because, because we've heard it for so long and no one has questioned it. We mm-hmm. just assume it's the case. And then, like I said, the other thing is, you know, we like to do things that we're good at and not good, you know, not things that we're not good at. Also, we like to do things that other people say is a good idea. So, you know, if I'm taking, you know, if I'm taking my work in coding very seriously, my parents might tell me, oh, good job. You're really focusing on this area. Yeah. If I, if I am interested in 
fashion. Let's go back to fashion or something like that. Yeah, My yeah. parents might say, that's great. You like that, that you have the hobby. <laughs> Right? Yeah. So they'll call it a hobby, whereas the other one's a serious endeavor. It's like a subliminal so, thing. Yep. It, it's, it's one of those things where what gets rewarded and reinforced is something we do more. So if, some, if, our, if our quote unquote passion is aligned with what society and our parents hope for us, great. Mm -hmm. No friction. But if those things are misaligned somehow, it's a little bit more jarring and you have to break through a barrier to actually do things. And it's uncomfortable for people right. to test that stuff out. Right. So I don't surf. I'm a bad Southern Californian chase. I don't surf, <laughs> but I feel, and, and I'm not good at it. You know, right. I probably tried it once. I wasn't good at it. Um, I'm less likely to do it because I'm not good at it. And it's been, you know, sometime I'm like, ah, I'm a little older. Like, do I really start? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like people, yeah. all, of, all of us have this. So I'm not saying I've conquered, you know, the passion friction or whatever the heck we want to call it. Right. right. But, but these are some of the reasons why I think people don't do what they might want to do instead. So with that idea of a lot of things in our life are based on the initial conditioning that we get as kids. How can someone work to change their conditioning to benefit them more in the passion or the job that they are pursuing, right? Like you said that your parents handed you the menu and it was lawyer, doctor, engineer, whatever, right? But like you said, you decided to go into fashion. How can you recognize and begin to change your subliminal conditioning are there strategies for that do you i'm sure you've seen that happen in students i'd love for you to speak more on that topic yeah absolutely i mean i have stories from my life and i see it all the time you first of all you have to recognize that it's like you know the first step is admitting to yourself that you know that you have this issue or whatever the case might yeah. be but but it's actually true you actually have to recognize that this is a thing and say, oh, like, what assumptions am I carrying? What do I think is a fact that's actually an opinion? Right. Right. Something as simple as, oh, the weather's bad. Is rain bad? It just, it's just rain. But right. because we're continuing to say, oh, it's bad, you get well, all this kind of stuff. It just, it's an opinion that the weather's bad if it's raining or something like that. Right. So, and all these other things too. Ooh, like musicians don't make money. Mm -hmm. Sure. Maybe on average, they make less than like, you know, they make less than a computer scientist, whatever, but I'm sure they're wealthy musicians. Is that the exception? Sure. But how do they do it? I'm sure if you talk about some successful artists, it was pretty systematic the way they did it. Right. You know, and so you got to just question whether something is true or not, or, or my parents assumption, right? Go to school, get a high paying, respectable job with benefits. Right. Where, but that's also something they knew. They immigrated to this country. They want stability or whatever. Is that so? Is that the only way to do it? No. When I started, you know, when I decided to go full time, still, even as a grown man with, uh, you know, I was married and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Even then, they're like, "Are you sure? Are you going to be able to make it?" Like, still, because yeah. it's uncomfortable. And so mm -hmm. you have to recognize, you know, what is a fact? What's an opinion? Mm -hmm. whose whose opinion is it and does that serve you well and if the answer right. is no like someone's telling you to do this thing you're not that into it and you're like oh my god the next 40 years i have to do this thing i don't like well right maybe maybe you don't have to you know and so to question that for me frankly you know i was going through school and it wasn't until like my early to mid-20s when i started questioning these things i started the first book uh, that was given to me by a good friend of mine was this thing called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You, you brought up real estate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a book about 
real estate investing, but not really. It's more so about, you know, challenging the status quo mindset. Yes, absolutely. And that took me down a whole different route of books like personal development and all this kind of stuff to, to really just change the way you think about things and some of the assumptions you hold to be true and success thinking and, and what have you. So, you know, I encourage students to get involved in that kind of stuff. And look, there are going to be different people in this space that appeal to some more than others. Some people like Tony Robbins. Some people hate Tony Robbins. Some people like Dale Carnegie. Some people hate to, you right. know, Dale Carnegie. And so there's always going to be, you know, someone who, you know, the way they deliver the message is going to resonate with them more or than someone else. But the thing is, actually just test your assumptions. If you're like, yeah, this is a good field. What does that mean? What is a good, let's say, let's just take, for instance, computer engineer, software engineer, it's a good field. What that usually means to people, there are jobs, you make a pretty good income, Mm -hmm. you get benefits and it's growing. Okay. What if I hate it? (laughs) Yeah. Right. No one has that. What if I hate it? Or are there other areas that are similarly, you know, that offer similar opportunities but are in areas I like more, right? Right. So just make sure to question things, especially if you're a young person, question things. This person said X, is that a fact? Is it an opinion? Why might that person have that opinion? What's their stake? Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes huge, it's huge. You know, if someone tells you, if someone's in software engineering and they say it's a good job, well, imagine someone who's doing it for 20 years says this is a horrible job. Psychologically, it's hard to come to terms with, oh crap, I think it's a horrible job. Why am I doing this? So you're much more likely to say because of cognitive dissonance that it's a good job, a good field. And by Mm -hmm. the way, I don't have an opinion one way or another on software engineering. I think it's a great, you know, a great opportunity for people who like it. I'd be a terrible software engineer. I'm not a software engineer, Yeah. but other people, I, I applaud them and it's a great fit for them. I'm just using an example of something we hear about a lot in 2021. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. That idea factor opinion, I think is huge. I don't think people recognize that enough is that people love to give their opinions. Technically, I suppose that's an opinion, but like people love to give their opinions on everything. And the most interesting thing to me as when the people will give their opinions on things that they know nothing about, right? Like, I think that's one of the biggest things that happens in our society today is that, like you said, you would be a terrible software engineer. You have no idea whether a software engineer would be a good fit for me or anyone else that you met on the street. Sure. But for some reason, if you said, Chase, I think you should be a software engineer, I might hold that opinion in high esteem and be like, Yes, the doctor said I should go be a software engineer. And then I run off and become a software engineer with no logical thinking of like, he's a doctor who works with college admissions. Why would would he be a good reference for software? You know what I mean? Yep. And that is especially true when we're talking about friends and family, because your friends and your family aren't necessarily going to be the greatest judge of whether or not something's going to be good for you. They know you. They don't necessarily know the thing that you're trying to do. So that idea of fact versus opinion is huge. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. And especially, especially that cognitive dissonance thing where like, if you, if you talk to someone who's been doing something for a long time, they are highly likely to say that they love what they're doing purely because of how long they've been doing it. You know, 
And so I think that's a big thing that people need to watch out for in their lives. So I know that we are kind of coming up against our time deadline here. So is there any topic that you want to cover before we move into the ending steps of this podcast? Is there anything that you would like to bring to my audience? Just open mic for you. Talk about what you want to talk about. We got through some good, heavy stuff, um, you know, for for students uh, and for, you know, people who are younger about things to consider because you're getting to an inflection point in life, you know, Chase, you and your peers of, mm-hmm. you know, what directions you can go down and, you know, facts versus opinions and where you might want to take your life and all that kind of stuff. My, the thing I want to leave folks with is, you know, when we're little kids and I didn't come up with this, you know, one of my mentors, Ramit Sethi came up with this, or at least I heard it from him. When we're kids, we're not worried about failure. Right. right. We play with it. My, my son, he's three years old. You know, he plays with a toy. If you can't put the blocks together in the right way, he doesn't, he doesn't lose his mind. He's not super upset about it. He just tries again. He doesn't worry about breaking things. Right. I think as we grow up, we become increasingly worried about breaking things. Mm-hmm. And I think that leads us to not try. So I think what the thing I want to leave folks with is to adopt more of that childlike mentality and don't do don't avoid things out of a fear of breaking things think about the opportunity what if it worked how good can it be right and if you approach things whether it's your personal life your professional life and so on i think it could lead to wonders i mean you're a shining example i think chase it's like well well what if i do this podcast and it doesn't sound good okay how many, exactly. you know, who's going to hear it? Okay. Let's say 10,000 people heard it and they'll forget about it in like 10 minutes. Exactly. Right? But if it hits and you like it, imagine the people you will meet, imagine the potential revenue, imagine the potential opportunities you're going to have in the future. And maybe it ends in three months and you're like, I had this incredible opportunity. And then one day, two years later, you're going to say, I have this question. Oh, back in 2021, I spoke with so-and-so mm-hmm. I'm going to ask them. Exactly. And so you never know, you know, where some of these decisions are going to take you, but don't avoid things out of fear of failure. I think it's the worst thing that you can do. Always question what if, what if I had, what if I tried this? Think about the opportunity. 110%. Thank you so much for saying that. People look too much at what could happen if they fail. Human beings love, love, love to make up what if scenarios for things that could possibly go wrong, you know? But I feel like people spend far less time making what if scenarios for what could happen if it went right. Mm-hmm. So that is a fantastic sentiment to leave this podcast with. It has been awesome to have you on here, Doctor. Um, I am so, so glad that we managed to make this interview work. Um, so thank you, honestly, for My pleasure. Giving, me, giving me your time and offering your insight on a lot of these topics. Genuinely, thank you. This has been really, really awesome. This has been a treat for me too, Chase. Thank you. Of course. You have a wonderful rest of your night. You as well. Thank you for listening to the Teen Financial Freedom Podcast. We would greatly appreciate it if you could subscribe, leave a review, and share this with someone who needs it.